Please keep your uh, finger there at that place in your Bible. We're going to be there in just a second on page 722 in the Pew Bibles and in Mark chapter 16. We're going to continue this morning with a look at some post-resurrection experiences of Jesus and the apostles especially. And this morning is definitely a unique text, this one from Mark chapter 16. You may know or you may not know that there are about 5,000 ancient manuscripts from which we take the New Testament. In other words, 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts that we use in order to get the New Testament that we have. Now, by comparison, just to let you know, for most of the works of antiquity, in other words, for example, a work like Homer, something like the Iliad or the Odyssey, or Tacitus's history, all of these were written a long, long time ago, there are a handful, in some cases, only one manuscript from which we have these originals and that we now have translations of those things. So in comparison to any ancient work that you can think of, there are literally thousands of Greek manuscripts presenting to us the text of the New Testament more, thousands more in the case of the New Testament than there are of any other Greek work from, from history. No work of antiquity has anything like the New Testament. So there are thousands of manuscripts that have to be sorted through. And you try and establish what is the very best, best text in order to determine what's in our New Testament. Now, that's interesting for today especially because if you look in your, the Pew Bible or if you look in your own Bible, you'll notice that there is a break in Mark chapter 16 between verse 8 and 9. And in most Bibles, there'll even be a note in there somewhere that will say something like, the oldest and most authoritative New Testament manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Do you see that? See what I'm talking about? And so most scholars would say, that verses 9 through 20 were not actually part of the original gospel of Mark. That at some point in history, someone most likely understanding and knowing something about the tradition of Jesus and what they had passed down to them. We know from Luke chapter 1 that these stories about Jesus were circulating about the New Testament world and they were telling these stories over and over again. And so... Stories were circulating about Jesus, and this longer ending of Mark is a depiction of what was going on. It's one of those stories that was circulating about, and it gets stuck onto the end of the Gospel of Mark. Well, there, now I find that interesting, by the way. I think it's fascinating that there's this major portion of the Gospel of Mark that is kind of stuck on there. So I think this. I think that verses 9 through 20 were not originally part of the Gospel of Mark. But I think that likely these words reflect something about the early church and what it was experiencing. And that the reason those words are added on there is because somebody wanted to tell something to the church. To give an encouraging word to the church out of the life of Jesus and the post-resurrection experience of Christ. And say... 
This is what Jesus did, and this is what Jesus said, and it fits perfectly our times. So in other words, somebody was experiencing something, and they said, boy, the church needs a message here. i got to be able to tell them something that's going to be encouraging and a blessing to them. What are we going to say to the church which is going to be encouraging and which is going to be a blessing? And I think that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is the answer. Not originally part of Mark's gospel, but nonetheless there in order to say something to the church of significance. Now, here's what I think it says. Follow closely with me here. I want to show you something. Look at verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it, it says. So they hear the message that Jesus is arisen, that he's been seen, but it specifically says they didn't believe it. Then look at verse 12. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. Now, this is what we read last week from the Gospel of Luke, the story of the disciples walking along the road to Emmaus, and Jesus came and he presented himself to them. Here it says, they returned and reported to the rest, in verse 13, but they didn't believe them either. So what you have here so far, among those who are hearing the message about Jesus, is a great deal of unbelief. They aren't believing it. They're being told, we've seen this guy alive. Jesus is back from the dead. I know we saw him crucified, but he's back. He's alive. We can't explain it, but I'm telling you, we've seen him alive. And they say, no way. We don't believe it. Verse 14, later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith, clearly they didn't believe these reports, and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had arisen. So three times in those verses, there are specific comments made about the lack of belief that is present on the part of those who are receiving this testimony about Jesus. Now, I'm thinking that if in those passages, belief or unbelief is the specific focus, that it may well be that unbelief is the problem in the early church for the person who wrote these words or put these at the end of Mark's gospel. Somebody was thinking, there is some unbelief here. And we're going to have to deal with this. Let's talk then about unbelief. Let's talk then about really believing and the impact that that needs to have on the lives of those who follow Jesus. Now, if you think about it, this doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that at some point in the early church that somebody would be tempted to not believe. It doesn't surprise me that somebody else wants to deal with the fact that there is unbelief. The reason it doesn't surprise me that there would be unbelief is because, simply, there was so much persecution in the ancient world. Now, we know that from 65 to 68 or so in the ancient world, that the Emperor Nero was persecuting the church. We know there were people who lost their lives during that persecution. Most likely, Peter and Paul both were killed during that initial persecution under Nero. 
But that wasn't the only persecution to take place. There were frequently persecutions at the hands of various emperors and at different parts in the empire. So, for example, in the year 2000 or 203, there were two women, Perpetua and Felicity. Perpetua was a noble woman, Felicity a slave. Both found themselves pregnant at the same time. Both were Christians. But the Emperor Severus was not pleased that there were Christians in the land, and so he sent out an edict saying that the Christians were going to be persecuted. These two women happened to live in Carthage on the northern edge of Africa. So they were arrested along with some other friends of theirs. They were jailed. They were mistreated. And eventually they were condemned to die in an arena very similar to the arena like in Rome at the Colosseum. They prayed. They rejoiced. They grieved. Grieved not so much for themselves and the pain that they were going to experience, but grieved rather that they weren't going to be the fit servants of Christ for the rest of existence uh, that a normal person would have. They wanted to have their lives carried out for more years of service to Jesus, but instead could see that their lives were going to end very shortly. So they were, in fact, taken into the arena. Their friend, uh, what was his name, Saturnius, was t- they, in the middle of the arena, they had built a, a, a mock bridge and Saturnius was tied to the, the uh, railing of the bridge so that he couldn't get away. And they loosed bears into the Colosseum. And the bears attacked him and tore him to pieces. Perpetua and Felicity saw all of this. They themselves were taken into the same area. And were both killed in much the same way. Except at the end, Perpetua wasn't yet dead. And so when they went to do her in with a sword, she had to take the point of the sword and explain to the novice military personnel exactly where he needed to cut her throat in order to kill her. The story is told uh, in ancient documents that depicted this from eyewitness accounts who talked about perpetual infelicity and lifted them up as noble servants of Christ. And my point is, is that in the year 200, if they're going to turn the beasts loose on me and my friends, and if I'm going to be so torn up by animals that at one point I long to die and say to the military officer here, plunge your sword in here so my life can be over. I think it might be tempting for me to disbelieve. I might just be willing to succumb to that kind of pressure. And I think that that is most likely this kind of setting where a passage like this comes from. Where somebody said, we need to... Help Christians understand the need to be faithful. 
We need to understand that unbelief is not at all what God wants for us. He wants us to be faithful throughout our lives. So he encourages the Christians to remain faithful and to keep believing. Now in class today, we were in the process of talking about our own worldly situation and where we stand before Christ. And I was discussing with the class this morning some facts about where we stand in our world today. And I, you can't see this on the screen, but I can see it here, so let me read it to you. It says, a recent study by the Barna Group's Kinnaman and Lyons, two researchers, shows that only 3% of 16 to 29-year-old non-Christians today express favorable views about evangelicals. 3% of 16 to 29-year-olds express favorable views about evangelicals. That means 97% don't. This means that today's young non-Christians are eight times less likely to experience positive attitudes toward evangelicals than were non-Christians of previous generations, most specifically my own, the boomer generation, which was thinking positively of Christians at about the rate of 25%. So today, the average 19 to 26-year-old looks at Christians and says, we don't like them. Why do we not like them? We don't like them because they're judgmental. We don't like them because they're hypocritical. We don't like them because they take stands that we don't take. My own generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, were thinking more positively positively about Christians at the rate of about 25%. Today, it's three. Now, that's not a very encouraging sign if we're going to think in terms of our responsibility as believers in Jesus. In fact, I would say, and this is what I concluded in class, those among whom we wish to make an impact are going to have an increasingly negative bias against Christianity as time passes before we ever speak with them about Christ. So before we ever have a chance to say anything to anybody about Jesus... They're already thinking badly about us. Another way to say the same thing. We will find ourselves trying to carry out our mission in an increasingly hostile environment. We have a message about Jesus. We want to reach the world for the Lord Jesus Christ one person at a time. But the message that they're receiving from us is not one. Apparently, they want to hear. And the statistics on the animosity of those who don't like us as Christians, is actually on the rise. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, I always kind of wanted to be in the in crowd. I thought that would have been cool. I wanted to be one of the guys that all the girls would like. I wasn't. I wanted to be one of those persons who was admired by all his peers. I wasn't. 
And we have a tendency, I think, still to want to have some sense of status about us. We look at the world around us and we think, I want to be esteemed by those around me. And I think that we think that in relationship to our neighbors. I think we think that in relationship to our friends. We think that in relationship to our workmates. We'd like to think that we're esteemed. Well, these statistics are saying that if we really live for Jesus and the world finds it out that the vast percentage of people in our world are not going to admire us specifically because we're Christian. And it looks like if things continue in this way, that it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And so if you wanted to be on the in crowd, if you wanted to be Mr. Popular, coming to Christ is not the way. It is the way, however, for transforming our society. It is the way for making a difference in someone's life. It is the way, in fact, it is the only hope, from what I can tell, for the future of our world and all the people that exist in it. And if there's ever going to be anything good, if there's going to be something that positively changes and transforms everything about our world, it's going to be the fact that you and I are Christians. The fact that we choose still to believe. The fact that we're willing to put ourselves on the line the way that Perpetua and Felicity did for the cause of Jesus. What strikes me about their story is that the emperor could not begin to stamp out Christianity. He tried. I know how I'll get rid of this new faith. I'll just tell everybody who's a Christian that I'm going to kill them if they continue to be one. And it looks like that would have so much positive effect. We can just get rid of this. We'll just kill them out one by one. We'll stamp it out. And so we look today at the most dominant religious faith in the world. And it's because people, just like you and me, decided that in the faith of the, face of that kind of persecution, despite the fact that the world does not look favorably on who we are in Jesus, that we're going to stand for Christ and be what he wants us to be. And we recognize that if there is a hope at all for our world to have any chance of being what God wants it to be, for people to live the kind of lives where we know that God will work in them and do something positive to bring about wonderful things for them in life, it's only through their faith in Jesus that that's going to happen. And today we trust in the same Christ. We trust in the same God who wants to work in us in powerful ways to transform our society and make things different. Through us, because Jesus is still working and alive in his church and making us what he wants us to be. And if we believe, then we have a chance to really transform our world for Christ. You know, you read this passage as you go on. Listen to these words. Verse 15 says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And so he still wants us to do that. 
And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So there's real sense in which we have to come to Jesus. He wants us to take that good news to the world so that they can hear and not receive the condemnation that those who don't know Christ will receive. And then in verse 17, it says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And the point is, is that God is with his people. Now, I must admit, I don't see God working in all of these ways today. If he chooses to work this way, then praise the Lord. If he chooses not to work that way, then praise the Lord. But what is so clear to me is that he still wants to work in his church. He wants to do powerful things through his people. And because he's with us, the things that appear to be so damaging about our world and the attacks that come our way that look like they would just totally destroy the mission of the church cannot destroy the mission of the church. It can't happen. It can't happen because God is the one who is on the throne. It's because Jesus Christ is alive and well. It's because the Holy Spirit continues to work in the life of the church. And what God says to us today through this passage is, I want you to continue to believe. And if you believe in me, there are things that we're going to do together, he says. I have big plans for you, church. There are things that I want you to get accomplished in my name. But what I need from you is for you to believe. Now, it may be that the real challenge for you is not the possibility of the loss of life because you're a Christian. There are not any of us probably who any time in our lives will be threatened with losing our lives Because we're Christians. Could happen. Sometimes things turn around quickly. But I don't anticipate it. What I know though. Is that you are faced with things constantly. That sap from you your faith. There are so many things around us. Me included. Who are constantly faced with things. That challenge My faith. They challenge my belief. People are saying to me all the time, there are scientific evidences that will destroy your Christianity if you just open a book and read about these scientific evidences. Now personally, I've read those scientific evidences, not convinced. But that challenge is there. There are opportunities For me to see things and to participate in things that would destroy me morally. And you know those as well as I do and you're confronted with them as easily as I am. And they will drag you away. And they will take you away from Christ. They'll destroy not just your spiritual life but your life if you let them. And they're as real as somebody saying, I'm going to tie you to this bridge and this bear will come. And tear you to pieces. These things tear up our lives. And destroy us. And in the face 
of those things God wants us to continue to believe. And so, this morning, I want you to understand that God is with us. That He loves you. That He loves the church. That He wants you to stand strong for Him. And I want you to understand that He wants more than anything to do powerful things in His name, through His people. And that if we but persevere and lean on Him, rely on Him, the way that perpetual felicity relied on Christ, that not just you will be preserved, but that the transforming power of the gospel, the powerful impact that the church can have on our world, can be preserved and propagated through us. I'm just looking like you are. For a bunch of Christians who will stand with me and who will believe and for us all to go together in His name to take the gospel to this world that needs so badly this good news of Christ. Will you go? I pray you do. I pray you believe. Bow with me, please. Holy Father, there are challenges around us constantly. Encouraging us, pushing us to not believe in you. There are voices constantly that drag us away, or at least try to drag us away. Both from being your children and from doing your will. Father, the world and Satan uses every form of enticement to drag us and take us away from your will and from changing our world. Father, help every person here this week to stand strong for you. Father, help us to go to those who need you so badly to make a good confession and use us powerfully the way you say that you will. To answer the needs of our world. Work through your spirit in us this week. Make us strong. Make us effective for you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.